you know, the play opened at the Goodman Theater in Chicago. Right, right. It's about as that I've been to that theater many times. It's about as far <laughs> from the Congo as it gets. Yeah. <laughs> and I love the Goodman. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to No Script, season two. Season of no two Script. is here. It's hey. crazy. We are yes, back. Yes. We're back. Welcome back, Jackson. Welcome back, Jacob. Happy New Year. Yes, it's 2019 now. Crazy. <laughs> what does it mean? Nobody knows. <laughs> <laughs> we do this Time. every year. It's like, yeah. it's going to be a great year. Let's Time see how it goes. <laughs> Well, we had a great holiday season. It was nice to kind of take a break, but we are very excited to be back with you all here and uh, talking about another play. And we're, we kind of went with a bit of tradition this time, Jacob, yeah? We did, yes. We are starting season two the same way that we started season one yeah. with a Lynn Nottage play. We started season one with her most recent play, Sweat, and now we are going back a ways to pull from one of her most most cherished, most prized plays. Today we are talking about Lynn Nottage's play, Ruined. Yes, uh, this is a play produced in 2008 in Chicago. Um, it was written by Lynn Nottage and uh, part of a partnership with uh, Lynn Nottage and Kate Worsicki. I think is how I'm saying that. Worsicki. Um, they uh, kind of collaborated to bring this play about. They were working on a play previous to this. Kate Worski was directing that play, and uh, as Lynn Nottage was uh, kind of conceiving this, they had conversations about it and decided to go and uh, go to the... Was it the Congo that they went well, to? Well, yeah, so or the... how, how it went down, as far as we understand, in terms of what we have read both by Lynn Nottage and by other people about the creation of this script, is that... Lynn Nottage imagined as she was hearing these stories of the war that was raging in the Congo between the government, whichever government at the time, and many more governments after that, and the rebels, again, whichever rebels they were at the time, and many more iterations of rebels after that, as she was listening in, hearing about this war, she imagined an adaption, a resetting of Breck's famous play, Mother Courage, into the Congo, which I, I just... That is a, oh, an amazing, wonderful, fantastic way to invent right. a play, to adapt <laughs> Mother Courage. So she and Kate go to Uganda, where they're going to interview women who have come from the Congo. The Congo is too dangerous to go to at the time, but women were fleeing the Congo into Uganda, and actually that appears in the script. And, and there, um, Lynn Nottage does some interviews. She does some storytelling. She listens and and really starts to understand the complexity, the specificity of what is going on in the Congo and decides that an adaption of Mother Courage is not sufficient to tell this story. So she's going to create a new play, Whole Cloth, uh, with with some ties from Mother Courage, with some yeah. loose connections to that script, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Yeah, with some some kind of themes that still come over, and uh, so so yeah, it was produced for the first time at the Goodman Theater in Chicago, and uh, then it got its New York premiere at the Manhattan Theater at the Manhattan excuse me at the Manhattan Theater Club in New York in two thousand nine, um, and it was that production that won the Pulitzer Prize, won a bunch of Obie Awards, um, and uh, yeah, and has kind of. Uh, continued to live on after that in readings and in, in, in classes and in, in other productions as well. But, uh, yeah, very fun, very fun to kind of get into this, uh, talking about how you take oral history and these real life stories and convert them into plays. Um, I'm very excited to get to talk about this one. Right. And Lynn Nottage's script is pretty different from the last script that we've talked about that is based in interview and oral history, which was the Laramie Project, right? The Laramie right. Project took a very realistic 
um, very, they took the actual words of the interviews and just told the same story the people were telling them. Whereas Lynn Nottage takes the stories of these women and crafts a, sort of a representative story of the sum of their experience or, or something like that. And the story, I'll, I'll kind of introduce the characters and, and briefly their plot lines. I think immediately you will recognize that this has some ties to Mother Courage because the, I don't know, the main character, one of the main characters of the script is named Mama, Mama Nadi. She runs a bar, a brothel in the Congo in a small mining town is what we're told. And it is inside this bar and this, the immediately surrounding area that the, the play takes place, where the, where the story unfolds. The inciting incident of the play is that a local salesman um, named Christian has brought Mamanati, among his other regular supplies, uh, a few women from various places that are, are coming, really escaping the violence that is being done to them as a result of this war by fleeing to Mamanati's, uh, to a brothel to work there because at least there they're protected and fed and, t- and taken care of in some degree. Whereas many of the women that have come have come from situations where they are being passed around soldiers, where they're being raped in camps, where they're being torn from their homes. So they, a lot of these women come from those horrifying situations to Mamanati because of her reputation for taking care of the girls that work for her. So the inciting incident is that a, a young woman named Sophie and a, an older woman not by much, only a year older, named Salima, both appear with Christian to work there. And we discover that Sophie is the title, as the title suggests, is ruined. And what it means to be ruined is that due to sexual violence, um, her genitals have been mutilated past the point of being a functioning reproductive system. And so she can no longer bear a child. It's incredibly painful. And so that's Sophie. And Mamanati really takes her in only out of charity to Christian. Um, and she she obviously can't function as a prostitute. So she becomes sort of a bookkeeper, an entertainer, a waitress. Uh, whereas Salima comes from, like I had described, sort of being uh, just basically a, a, a rape victim of soldiers tied to a tree for months and sort of used by all the soldiers in the camp. She comes to, and so these two women come, and, and then throughout the course of the play, the various sides of this war all appear at Mamanati and interact in different ways with the bar. Um, the story really belongs to the three, those three women, Mamanati and Sophie and Salima, um, as well as a few other characters beyond that. As you can tell, it is not a happy story. Right. Um, it, this is this is a hard play in a lot of ways. The lives of the characters are hard. The lessons that they learn are hard. The ways that they learn them are hard. So this is our good time to say you've heard the plot summary of the script, and we've put warnings out in our uh, you know advertisements for what's coming up on our podcast. So. If this is not something that you want to listen to, now's a good time to stop listening. We're not going to be offended. We know that this is a subject which has a lot of deep-rooted pain in a lot of people. So please do not feel bad. Please just don't listen to this one. Go listen to our discussion about Harvey or Our Wilderness or something a little more lighthearted. That's great. Um, This this is probably going to have some deep-seated implications um, for the lives of the characters, sexual violence, things like that. That's what you're going to hear on this episode today. Yeah. So for those of you who have stuck around, um, let's talk about just the setting for a second, just to kind of set things up and then we can kind of branch out from there. The setting itself is this crossroads for so many people. Um, So many, I mean, the variety of people who come through uh, Mama Nadi's place is is crazy. There's government soldiers who's come through. There are the uh, rebel soldiers who come through. There's a Lebanese diamond merchant who comes uh, into there. Uh, Christian is this uh, merchant who brings goods to Mama Nadi, but he also kind of uh, hangs out there a good chunk of the time. So it's and it's has just... a, a sort of relationship with her, a flirtatious right. uh, possibility of a relationship. They clearly care for he or each other quite a bit. They're similar ages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they're kind of they they have this kind of uh, 
fighting, maybe flirting relationship with each other the whole time. They're they're always poking fun at each other. But it's 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 really interesting to see so many of these people kind of confluence one scene apart in one instance the leader of the rebels is in the room and then the leader of the governmental yeah, not, forces not even one scene apart the same scene the right the rebel yeah. leader leaves and his group takes off in their truck and then the government leader comes in and says who just left in that truck right <laughs> and you kind of go huh, that's a that's a little coincidental but it right. really does raise the stakes in a pretty extreme way and that that plot point actually becomes important to the eventual tragic end of the play yeah and and Mamanati's composure in these in this scenario scenario of so many people coming through uh, I, I would uh, many people in in her place are not as composed as she is but she just like nearly flawlessly throughout this manages the 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 inter interpersonal relationships with these varying waves of power of people who come through all of which all of which can affect her and the women that she is protecting with her business essentially right she she is sort of the representative of leave your problems at the door Leave your identity at the door. I don't care. It's sort of her mantra is that when you're here, you're you're just here as a patron. Uh, She makes the soldiers, the rebel soldiers and the government soldiers alike, leave their bullets at the bar. She doesn't want that. She shuts down any political talk. She continually says to either the rebel leader or the government leader who asks, you know, I don't really, I'm on your side, but it's just the way it is. You know, I'm the only bar for kilometers, so I get all kinds here and such and such. And, And that's, of course, another tie to that origin of this story, that Mother Courage, is that Mamanati is a woman like Mother Courage who is profiting from the violence that exists around her. And Mother Courage, in some ways, acts as a critique of Mother Courage and the way that she lets her children sort of fall away to the violence of war while she profits from it. And Ruined is a is in some ways a similar critique of Mamanati. It presents a woman who says, I don't super care what happens as a result of this war. I have my bar. In my bar, it doesn't matter whether you're a rebel soldier. It doesn't matter whether you're a government soldier. You come to get entertained and have a drink, and that's what you're going to get here, and I don't care about anything else. And she's so stubbornly dug into that point of view that almost one by one, the characters around her sort of fall away and say, look, that's crazy. You're going to get yourself and everybody else killed. I'm getting out of here. Right, right. And eventually, you know, eventually it boils down to the people with power having a differing viewpoint, which is, no, you can't just let everyone else in. Um, the, and and that, that, that comes to a head pretty, <laughs> pretty terribly. But in the meantime, it seems to be working pretty well for her. She's, she's, she's survived this way for such a long time. Yeah, it's not, it's not a... Um, she she's been able to kind of had this have this peaceable relationship with a lot of people you you get uh, instances of like Mr. Harari the diamond merchant saying his troubles with uh trying to make relationships with people in this quickly fluctuating system and up until very late in the play that doesn't seem to be a problem for Mama Nadi. she is able to oh, control it pretty right, well right because she's almost not really interested in having real relationships with the people who aren't the women at her bar she's only really interested in the transaction and providing them with as much pleasure as much entertainment as much food and drink as they can handle and pay for and in exchange she gets money and that's really the farthest that she wants that relationship to go. And you even sort of see that with Christian as the play develops, that he is continually saying, well, I want there to be a little bit more to this relationship than just me paying you for something or you paying me for something. And it boils down where she's just not interested in that. And it comes to the head when Christian just finally says, well, fine, here's money. That's what you're after. Okay, fine. Here's money. You and I are just, we're just exchanging money. It's fine. And, you know, it's it's clearly not fine for him. I think that, the 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 reason why this tenuous system for Menominati ends up falling apart is the entrance of this new or maybe higher ranking government official because uh, up until the entrance of commander Osambanga 
or something like that. Um, up until his entrance, I think you're right. It does seem like what exists is this sort of agreed upon peace at Mamanati's. We come in and we just are patrons. Her system seems to work. In fact, it sort of reminds me, there's a famous story in Arkansas where I'm from of Hot Springs, which is a town here, and how all the gangsters from around the country back during that era would come to Hot Springs as their vacation. And it was just an agreed upon peace that when you were at Hot Springs, there was no fighting. You were just there to enjoy yourself no matter what gang you were from. And the people of Hot Springs, obviously, that worked pretty well for them because they were one of the few communities not racked by this gangster violence to the (laughs) point where when the state police find out about it, they come to try to shut it down and the local police have a standoff with them because they're like, (laughs) you can't interrupt this peace. You can't make war here, man. We've had peace for so long. So it kind of feels like that at Mamanati's until Commander Osambanga arrives. And what happens when he arrives? How does he change the game, Jackson? Well, he completely switches it because he basically comes in and says, if anyone, I'm going to be burning through all the places that are sheltering the rebel leader, who is uh, Kasembe. Um, and uh, and he's been in there before. So he's the, 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 the economy has shifted in that way and that now he is there. Um, he is the one, he, he says that I'm in, I'm in charge, I'm going to do this and you better get in line or else we're just going to mow through. And uh, so that's, that's part of it is that eventually this, you know, person, he's also claiming that he's there to help democracy and uh, bring about or try to maintain peace in the realm where the rebels are uh, stirring things up. So he's taking, he's, he's, saying he has the high ground, but he'll, he's willing to defend it and take it with uh, terrible force. And that terrible force uh, is what Madam uh, Mama, <laughs> Mama Nadi is holding off throughout this play. The, the other part that kind of, I think the fire that lights underneath it that, that causes things to come about is actually her taking in Salima because eventually Salima's husband comes and that and that's he's kind of the piece that um breaks apart this fragile facade that uh, right. Mamanati he, is he's keeping. the final jenga piece right he's right. the piece that finally gets pulled out and causes the whole things to collapse but the the ta- you know using the metaphor the jenga tower has been getting more tenuous <laughs> throughout the whole play it didn't yeah. really it, if it wasn't him it would have been somebody else that ends up pulling out the rug and collapsing the whole thing on top of of Mamanati. um the commander, I think what he does is that he he enters in his scene and does something that it didn't seem like the rebel leader really did, which is that he demands loyalty. And Mama Nadi normally wouldn't allow that. But something about hearing his name sort of cows her a little bit. And so I, I get the sense that he probably is a recognized figure as being somebody mm-hmm. high up in the military chain of command. And so she becomes aware that, oh, no, this is a bigger deal um, than, it, than it was before. It's no longer just local people fighting. There's, there's somebody coming in to establish peace, quote, unquote, right. um, by burning the villages to the ground. And I yeah. don't want to be caught in that. So then she starts to play, rather than play the game of it doesn't matter who you are when you're here, she starts to have to play a new game, which is I'm on your side when you're here. Right. And that's tougher for her to play because all it takes is one person to notice she's serving drinks to both sides, the wrong person to notice, I should say, right. and it will collapse the whole tower. And as you said, that is what happens. Yeah. I think I think you're right on with that in that she, she Mamanati is, is a place where her rule is law. Basically, once you step in the doors, you're on her turf, you follow her rules. Um, Commander Osinbenga comes in, and while he does unload his gun and follow the rules, quote-unquote, he absolutely brings his power into the room. And now it's a contention, right? And like, I love the way that he does it, too. When, when A couple of other times when Mama Nadi demands the bullets from people's guns, it's, it's in a demanding way, and they sort of cower to her and right. give in. Uh, the way that the commander does it is a way that keeps his own power. He sort of laughs about it. It's almost right. like, I'm handing you the bullets. How cute. All right. We'll play by your sure. rules today. <laughs> and it's such a it's such a brilliant writing strategy to have him still 
follow the rules, but in a way that makes you want to qu- put air quotes around it like I just did, you know? Like, okay, <laughs> right. yeah. how cute. We'll do it this time. And he still maintains some authority in that. Right. Yeah, and he's he's not connected to the community. I think I think you're true that I think you're right in that he's he's you know he's from somewhere else, not connected, doesn't get the gravitas of this place necessarily, and just kind of comes in. Versus uh, Kimbe, um, or I'm sorry, Kasimbe, who um, who does. You get the feeling that he's very connected, and while he's there, there is a similar kind of gin- people around him are gingerly um, trying to keep him contained. Uh, while he's there, but not in the same way as when uh, Commander Osinbenga is there. Yeah, they're really opposing figures in the way that they have power. I'm sure that Osinbenga is is physically imposing, but his power doesn't seem to come from the threat that he could do immediate violence to you. His power seems to come from this sort of innate command that he has and his ability to, in sort of a, a broader term, raise your village to the ground. But he doesn't feel like the kind of guy who's going to turn around and slap you across the face or stick a gun in your head to get what he wants. He's a guy that has power over soldiers to get what he wants otherwise. Whereas this rebel leader, does his, his sort of frantic energy, his sort of frantic power comes from this sense that he would kill you on the spot with his bare hands if you looked at him wrong. And actually, that gets talked about by um, the the diamond merchant. He taught the the diamond merchant is talking about how in these rebel camps, there's a new leader every week, and they're not real leaders. They're just whoever sprung up at the time, and all they're really interested in is the next drink, the next violent encounter. And so, unlike Commander Simbenga, who has a real authority coming from training and you know government instilled power, these rebel leaders come up and fall down and they're really just sort of people who were more violent than their buddies at the time and so right. they rose to the top yeah which i i, th- I would argue mama nadi knows how to deal with right like she that's a power she, she can deal with i agree yeah she can lock that down and and that's it's not an issue i i, I don't feel like there's the same kind of fear of uh kisembe as there is of commander osambenga um and because because she knows how to deal with him and 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 she gets she gets him out of there even even better than her soldiers than his soldiers around him like there are scenes where they're talking about kind of the soldiers trying to keep him calm and she just kind of calms it down she she reels it in um the other people who really you know have to <laughs> have to perform and and maintain control of emotions throughout all of these scenes are the three other women who we are are introduced to to this play there are 10 women that she employs in this place i believe she says at one point but uh, the three that we uh, have uh, interact with in this play are Josephine, Sophie, and Salima. Josephine, and, and in the plot summary, we mentioned that Sophie and Salima are new. They were brought yeah. as the first scene of the play. Josephine, however, is uh, an old hand. Right. Josephine has worked there for a while. Uh, she kind of uh, <laughs> orients them as they come in to to the place, and the, and there's the. There are so many scenes. There are three or four different scenes where it starts uh, as just kind of the events of the evening uh, in this play. And those involve, uh, you know, serving of drinks, entertaining the the men who have come here, uh, Sophie singing uh, songs, uh, Mama Nadi sings songs uh, at, at one point as a part of the evening. And and the th- but the three women all kind of share these asides, these moments apart. The first one is... Uh, 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 where uh, Sophie and Salima are still grappling with the newness of all of this because they have come from uh, captivity and and have now arrived here and they're still uh, Salima is still dealing with um, the reality of the situation, which is that she is uh, entertaining men as a prostitute, and Sophie is still kind of sitting in the space of. She's not having to here because of Mama Nadi's protection. And this, this, this <laughs> into that kind of grappling with the difficulty jumps Josephine, who is just uh, a lot more comfortable with this reality than the other two are. Well, she's been around it a lot longer, right? I mean, 
this, you know, like I said in the plot summary, these women come to Mama Nadi for protection. They understand what it means to come to her, but at least as prostitutes, they have some level of control over the sexual encounters that they have. Whereas in this violent war, tons and tons and tons of women are just raped and mutilated every day. You know, Salima has this heartbreaking story of, I think I said before, she's tied to a tree for five months and just passed around, she says, like like the evening soup. I mean, she comes from that, and she comes to Mama Nadi's, and it, it, you know... To some degree for her, it is better. But there is this grappling with this world in which she's now making the choice to do this activity which she doesn't like, which is demeaning to her, which which hurts her in a in a you know in deep and personal way. And she's gone from being being a violent thing and a horrifying thing to something that she's choosing to do in exchange for protection, for food, for bed. But it's the choice I think that that Salima struggles with right away. I'm not just a captive anymore. Now I'm choosing to do this. Uh, and but it's but it's better than the situation I had before. Right. Yeah. Which which eventually kind of plays into the the complication of that is that her her husband Fortune comes and finds her, and Fortune threw her out of the village when she came back. Um, came back from being in captivity from from right. her five months as a rape victim, as a nightly multiple rape victim. Right. And so somehow he like follows along the road for months trying to find her and shows up and she's, you know, grappling with the fact that that he 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 threw her out. He did not welcome her back in when when she came back and now he's here for some reason. She kind of has come to peace with the choice to be here and and that becomes a really core struggle which eventually kind of lights satellite fires around this play as as uh, fortune her husband is like standing outside for days not not going away even though not mama Nadi is like pushing him away trying to get him to leave right so fortune arrives having looked for salima everywhere and it's it's complicated he arrives and said is is there a woman named salima here and mama Nadi goes back and then comes out and says no i'm sorry there's not and so initially as an audience member you don't know whether she's lying or whether Salima has told her to say that. So there's some conflict right away of, well, we know that she's here, so what's going on? And then in the next scene, or maybe one scene after that, you get to see Salima talk about it. And what we've discovered is that she's been horribly hurt by her husband in a way that makes her not want to go with him. And the hurt is that, like Jackson said, after coming back from this horrific experience of captivity with these soldiers... Her family and him specifically said, you know, you're dirty now. I think at one point he calls her poison. The the soldier's fingers have turned you to poison. You must have done something to incite them. You must have been teasing them or seducing them. And that's what caused all this. You're bad. You're dirty. You're evil. Go away. And he, apparently he like whips her with birch rods around the ankles until she runs. So so she runs and she runs and she runs and comes to Mamanati's and now Fortune comes along looking for her, proclaiming his love and how yeah. sorry he is. And you learn right. all this and you're like, dude. What? <laughs> Not nah, yeah. cool, man. Right. <laughs> Understatement of the year. Yeah. Yeah. And that's and and so so she has her has this a lot that she's carrying. Her child also died in the, in the moment before. Oh, that's right. As yeah, she was being before she gets taken. Her kid. Yeah, gets, as she's she, being she taken. watches her child get the and this is gonna be really violent and gruesome. So if you haven't read yeah. the play, I apologize. The child gets his its head stomped in by yeah. the soldiers who are raping her. Yeah, and and this I mean this all comes out in in. The course of the play as she is trying to grapple with it. So the, a huge, huge amounts that she is unpacking in this scene. And then there is uh, Sophie alongside of her who is also going on this this crazy journey from just awfulness before and then coming here and being a part of Mama Nadi's. She is well, and she I, is still I think actively... you missed the first part of the journey for both these women. It, it's not awfulness right away. Both That's these true. women come from really beautiful lives in their own way. Salima had a husband and a child that she loved, a family. She had, you know, a field that was going to produce well that year and a garden she was taking care of before she was taken by this brutal war and these terrible soldiers taken and 
and and attacked and murdered or not murdered her baby was murdered she was you know raped like we said sophie is uh, a woman who's going to be sent on to university she's had all the opportunities in the world before she is taken by the soldiers and violated with a bayonet which is Mm -hmm. what caused her to become ruined and Josephine even, it comes out that she was a, a chief's daughter and came from a position of you know authority within, within her village and uh, eventually came to here as well. So all three of these women, I, thank you for pointing that out, came, came from uh, really good places. And then this war just dis, uh, came in and destroyed a lot of that. And now they're here and you get to hear their stories. And Sophie... Uh, it gets to be, as you said, Mama Nadi's uh, kind of accountant in this scenario, and she is still trying to get out. She is like kind of stealing, stealing money slowly uh, from Mama Nadi at the beginning of it, which brings about one of the more, I, I think, interest, one of the very interesting conflicts in this play, which is that Mama Nadi isn't fooled. <laughs> well, ever. she is for a while until she actually sees Sophie put money into her shirt. Um, Sophie does successfully trick her because Mamanati doesn't know how to count or uh, I'm not sure exactly how far Mamanati's education extends. I'm not sure how much she can actually read. Um, but at the very least, she doesn't. she's not really able to count her own money. And so Sophie comes along and offers that pretty valuable skill. But what she does do is skim a little off the top and mm-hmm. keep some of it for later on we learn that she's keeping money for an operation which a surgical operation which could repair the damage that these soldiers did to her mhm and and so so Mamanati eventually d- uh, discovers it and they have this this uh moment where she she reveals that she knows and takes the money back why doesn't she just throw her out is is uh, a kind of a big question throughout the play. Um, on more than one occasion, why doesn't she just throw out Sophie? Right. So the first occasion she could have is when Christian brings her in the beginning and says, look, this is my niece. She's been ruined. No one else will take her. She can't go back to the village. I need somewhere where she'll be safe, where you know she can be taken care of, where she can do work. Uh, you're the only person I know that can do that in this terrible environment that we're living in. And Mamanati initially wants, doesn't want it, doesn't want the extra mouth to feed, doesn't want the extra trouble, um, but ultimately decides to take her in. So that's number one. Number two is the scene Jackson's describing where she discovers that Sophie's stealing money from her and says, look, why don't you just go? Uh, if you don't want to be here, if you are don't feel like your, your deal is equal, if whatever, uh, you can't steal money from me, so why don't you just get out of here? So both those situations, she has this option to reject Sophie entirely, and she doesn't. And the question of why, I'm not sure is is totally ever answered until the very, very last scene. And so I'm not sure exactly... I feel like to 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 sort of take the information you learn about Mamanati in the last scene and backwards apply it um, is difficult unless you see the play more than once. But what we learn in the last scene is that Mamanati is also ruined. Um, and so... When she learns about Sophie's plight in the initial encounter with Christian, she becomes willing to take her in. And ultimately, when Sophie says, look, the reason I've been stealing money is so that I can pay for this operation to repair the damage. I I believe at some level this pulls on Mamanati's inclination to say, you know, there's a way out. For, for for women like us who've not only had the sexual violation of multiple rapes and, you know, all that horribleness, but have also been violently mutilated. Yeah, that's a really good point. I, I, I don't know that I really picked up on that connection, and that's a good point that that there is that that through line in her, that that shared experience and um, and how how important it is to to still help her and i think that's that's the biggest thing mamanati has is this sense of of helping others she sacrifices quite a bit by the end of this play instead of running away and 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 there she also has a great deal of pride for this establishment it's hers she doesn't want to leave it but there are there are plenty of reasons to leave by the end of this play and the reason that keeps coming up is i can't leave these 10 people i can't bring them with me 
There's not, I, I can't, I can't move with them. And so I'm staying, I can't leave them. And, and that protection is a huge part of her, this, this, this care that she shows to these people. Right. She's very proud of the fact that she is able to feed and take care of this community of women amidst this horrible, violent war where people are starving to death every day and getting killed in the streets and, you know, all this horribleness. She maintains a place that is, I mean, you think that she, her answer would be, I maintain a place that's safe for women. Of course, the place is a whorehouse, is a brothel, right? Right, right. So, you know, the word safe, it, it's hard to translate what it means, right? Relative. That's the, the, yeah. a lot of this play is about relative morality, relative safety, relative. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, dilemmas faced by the characters because the the situation is so unlike what the, you know, Western audiences are seeing of this play in America. You know, the play opened at the Goodman Theater in Chicago. Right, right. It's about as, that, I've been to that theater many times. It's about as far <laughs> from the Congo as it gets. Yeah. <laughs> and I love the Goodman, but it is right. not the Congo. So yeah. you, you come in as this person, or at least we do, this person whose experience is totally unlike. I mean, just completely, entirely, there's almost no similarities between my experience, my lived experience, and the lived experience of the characters in the play. You you come to that and you and you almost wonder, I mean, what could possibly somebody like me take away from this lived experience other than a desire to change the world, which might be part of it, and certainly I know is, having done the research I've done around what this play has done for communities and why it was produced. That's part of it. But in terms of that sort of artistic core, what is the human connection? And, And you're right. I mean, I think the human connection is... This this I, this desire of Mama Nani's to provide a place of relative safety. This desire of hers to care for other people as Mama, right? I mean, why does she go by Mama? Right, right, absolutely. She is she is the protector. She she is providing for them. And I, and I think I think you're right too that 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 through line that human connection through it is is really. It's the reason to do these real stories, right? This, these, these. Um, we, we talked a little bit at the top about oral history and and you know collecting stories and then producing them in some way. And oral histories and and plays like this allow those stories the time on stage in front of people for us to continue to discuss it within community settings. And 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 that's why I, I've done a lot some work with oral history and I'm excited to to keep doing it because these plays matter for the greater context of people to be exposed to more and more viewpoints as well. Right, and and a lot of the experience surrounding this play has been pointed towards this real-life issue that is told in the fictionalized story format of the play, which is the sexual violence and just general violence that goes on in that part of this world, especially that particular war, which rages and kills and you know, causes untold, unspeakable damage to the people who are involved in it. And a lot of the experience of the play has been to say, what can we do to change that? You know, there's talkbacks oftentimes after this play is shown. There's collections taken at at productions of this play. Things like that to say that what, you know, what has gone on in this fictionalized story is in some ways contained to it just being a story, but because it comes from, literally comes from these interviews with women who've really gone through it, it's also a reflection of this real situation, which does need addressing in some way. Right. And, and, and the economy of it too, like just, just as long as we're on the real world stuff in this play, that the reason this war is happening is they're fighting over Colton, which is uh, an export from the Congo that has to do with cell phones. It's, a, it's an important metal in cell phones. So it's it also brings attention to the fact that, though, and you know, many of the corporations that make cell phones and thus us, the consumers who buy cell phones, are complicit in this as well, which is not something I necessarily knew as I started this play. So. That increases the conversation around that as well. Right. The play is just wrapped in facts like that and, you know, real implications of what these fictionalized characters are going through. I'd be interested, Jackson, in hearing how you think the play treats 
the rebel cause, the rebel soldiers versus the government cause, the government soldiers. Does it seem like the play takes a side? If so, which side? If not, what what kind of neutrality does it keep? Boy, it's a neutrality in awfulness rather than a neutrality in like shared goodness of sides. It's not like it's giving both of them really good time of day. It's giving them both really bad time of day. And that's probably appropriate because uh I mean, you you there are the, the one thing I will say is that uh Commander Osambenga gets a lot more um stage directions that bend him toward being a little bit icky, more than a little bit icky. Um uh, he, he is he is supposed to come off a little bad in in this I think uh, so regardless of of what the greater governmental forces are trying to do the character of Commander Osambenga should come off as antagonistic and almost evil um, so but but I think beyond that though I don't I don't think this play necessarily I think it stays away from making that judgment because it is universally bad. Um, people on both sides are doing things that are reprehensible and it's not trying to say, you know, like Star Wars, the rebels are good or something like that. I don't think it's, it's definitely not trying to say that rather it's telling the stories of these women and, and, and other satellite characters as well, but especially these four women who are in the center of the struggle and how it affected them and how it continues to affect them. And that's, that's the other thing as well. It, it's, it, it doesn't necessarily give an endpoint. It's not like this happened back then. It's continuing to affect them. And as they live in that struggle of these two sides, there are regular people who are stuck in between them. And, and, and it, it, it doesn't matter which side uh, eventually will win out for whatever moral reasons. These people were still hurt in that struggle. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's it, the play doesn't seem to, and m- many of the characters that work at Mamanati's don't seem to have a particularly strong opinions about being for the rebels or for the government. There's some ethnic divides that occur uh, about you know what tribes people are from and things like that. But but even that doesn't have an especially strong representation on the reality that the women face because it's almost as if the soldiers are all grouped into one antagonist and the protagonist is this group of four women Mamanati and her three employees and their you know their attempt to push back and establish some normalcy some family in this subjective relative way amidst this antagonism which is soldiers fighting almost over nothing the play almost seems to make the point that we're not really fighting over anything like at one point um, the the rebel leader is in the bar and makes some speeches about how the government is, you know, all all these terrible things the government is and represents and how the rebels are going to bring peace and democracy. Oh, and by the way, the government is burning down missions and cutting up, uh, you know, missionaries and, and look at how bad they are. And then the rebels leave and we've talked about the scene before, Osemba, or Asenga, um, Gosh, I can't remember his name right now. Osambenga. Osambenga, thank you, comes in the door almost right as they leave, and he does a nice speech about how evil the rebels are, how we're going to bring democracy and peace by the force of the government. Oh, and by the mm. way, the rebels are burning down hospitals and cutting up uh, you know, yeah. medical staff. It's it's like Lynn Nottage has gone to, has not only just been neutral, but gone to a length to say there's some equivalence here. Yeah, absolutely. That, I, I'm glad you brought up that scene because that is like the equation is just like almost equal in that is that these people are killing this branch of people who are, you know, basically innocent, not innocent, completely innocent. Maybe maybe there's more complication than that, but we'll say innocent and trying to help. This b- group of people are killing this group of people who are innocent and trying to help. And it's just completely even in that scene of you get the two leaders saying what the other sides are doing and it's all awful and it's all hard. Um, I like what you said about family in there as well. And I think that's kind of one of the, the subtle undercurrent themes that, that comes out is how do you make family in the middle of this? And it kind of ends very familial at the end, right? The final scene almost feels like, uh, you know, the uh, Sophie and and Josephine are left at the end kind of peering in on Mama Nadi and, 
and Christian dancing in the room. There's, and it's almost as if, you know, the two children are kind of looking at the parents in the room. Um, and, and in that, that kind of final image, as, as we've said before, the kind of blink and get a retina at the end of the play, that's what we get is uh, Sophie and Josephine looking at Mama Nadia and Christian dancing. And so that, that kind of, I, I like that you brought that up, that, that, that family is also a part of what you're shooting for. How do you, how do you create family, and, whatever and, that means? And it, it goes back to this word we like to keep using in this episode, relative, right? It's about relative family. Yeah. Because in the midst of this terrible war and these this awful violence, regular family has not seemed to work out. It doesn't really seem right. like it's going to be adequate anymore because regular family does things like turn you away when you finally come home after months of being brutalized. A uh, regular family, in Sophie's case, find it unlucky to have a ruined woman around. There's all these sort of attachments to the traditional family structure uh, that that say, you know, in the midst of this chaos of war, that has failed this particular group of people. And so they're trying to create a, a something like family, a relative normalcy and stableness in the midst of it all. And And in doing so, they become sort of one protagonist against one antagonist. And the question is, what violence is still going to be done on them as a result of all this? And ultimately, in the climactic moment of the play, Salima, you know, her response is, you are not going to wage your war on my body anymore. It's You, you can't have me in that way anymore. And uh, given what happens to her, that is true. Right, yeah. That That scene in general is just so... The rest of the play, uh, I, I imagine, on stage uh, is very tension filled. You can feel things beginning to build, and and just you're, I imagine, kind of cringing down into my seat more and more as different things begin to happen. But that scene, so many things happen that are just real hard, really hard to watch, or really hard to read. I imagine it's very hard to watch. That it starts that scene with uh, the the jewel merchant is leaving. Right, he's he's on his way out of town, and and this is the second to last scene, the you know the quote unquote climax of the play. Right, yep. So uh, Mr. Harari, the 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 diamond merchant, is leaving, and Mama Nadi asks him to take this diamond that she's brought out before and asked him how much it's worth, and it turns out it's worth a decent amount, and he she asks uh, him to take Sophie with him and sell the diamond give her the money and for for this surgery that she has been wanting and to and help for help enough her. money afterwards to get a life i mean the, right. the diamond is worth quite a bit and mr the, the guy says you know this is a lot of money yeah and she says yeah yep. it's enough for her to start a life mhm and then then a timer flips Right. Mamanati leaves the room, goes to get Sophie and the aid worker who is going to be driving Mr. Harari out of here comes in and says, there's trucks coming. We got to go right now. I'm not staying around here. There's three trucks coming of government, you know, their government vehicles. Prior to this uh, fortune, uh, Salima's husband has told the commander that that the rebel leader was in the bar. And and so that's the foreshadowing that we have of this scene is that the commander now knows that Mama Nadi had the rebel leader in the bar. Right. So hell is coming. Uh, yeah. There, you know, there's hell to pay about what, what's been happening and it's, and it's finally on its way. And so the, he's faced with several options. The aid worker says, we have to go now. He's holding the diamond, which is an incredibly important prop that we haven't talked much about, which mm -hmm. is uh, something that Mamanati has been saving as an insurance policy. She wants to use yeah. it to buy a plot of land and sort of keep a garden. This It's her retirement package, right? Right, right. And she's held it for a long time, and it's really important to her. But she gives it away in order to provide for Sophie. So... He's holding the the diamond. Sophie's not there yet. The aid worker says, "I'm leaving now. The these van, these trucks, this this army's coming. We got to split." And he's faced with a couple of options. The first option is that he could stay um, and let the aid worker drive off without him. Not yep. a great option. Right, you know, he would die <laughs> most likely. Um, the second option is that he could leave the diamond. And then leave himself. He can't take Sophie. Don't have time. Okay, here's your diamond back. I'm out of here. Right. That would at least, I think, be a uh, a conscienceable choice, given what is going on. He mm -hmm. picks the worst 
possible <laughs> option and takes the diamond and leaves him there. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and what a jerk. Yeah. He's not a reprehensible character the rest of the play either. Like, it comes about Relative. very quickly. <laughs> Re- relatively. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, again, <laughs> relatively. Um, <laughs> he comes down on, on, on several good sides. Um, but, but yeah, he, he, that so so that happens this you know prop that we have seen on a couple different occasions or at least have heard mention of on a couple different occasions is gone and and we know what it means to Mamanati that it is gone so that's that's huge in that scene and then then the army comes and all all hell breaks loose in that they they are there they're they're threatening physical violence against these women sexual violence against these women to tell them where the rebel leader is and it is eventually Salima coming out bleeding and dying that stops whatever and is is progressing I, I don't believe that we've mentioned this but Salima is pregnant and uh, yes, has been yep. for much of the play she continues to grow and is continually worried about getting noticed um so she comes out we know she's pregnant. I don't know exactly how many other characters do. I think Mama suspects. I know that Sophie knows. Um, I don't know what Josephine knows or doesn't. Uh, she comes out bleeding. It's not immediately clear to me totally why she's bleeding. Yeah, I don't know that. I don't know that it really narrows it down really for us. I'm not sure if she gets hit with like something like a stray bullet, or if one of the soldiers drags her out after having stabbed her, or if she has tried to do something like uh, have an abortion, or if it's being ill. I really don't know exactly why she's bleeding, but she's bleeding I- enough to the point that she dies I- at the culmination of this scene. Um, and like I said, you know, her final kind of cry there is that her body, my body is not going to be, uh, the battleground for you to wage your war anymore. Mm hmm. Which, which touches on, uh, some of what this play has striven to do in, in, in the real world as well. What Lynn Nottage and Kate Worski have been doing after the play has been sitting on boards for like the United Nations and letting this play inform the conversation about how we stop using rape and sexual violence against women specifically to to use it as a weapon of war anymore and how to continue that conversation towards eradicating it completely. Cause that is, I mean, I agree that that scene real she, she, she lays that out there. And in that scene that you can't do that, you, you will not be able to do this anymore to me. And, and in death, that is, that is a, a, a almost a bit of comfort or, or, or a, a rock that she ends up standing on in that final scene as she dies. Right, and it it goes back to her sort of t- taking the whole war, the all, both sides of soldiers. And actually, we know that the war is very complicated, and that there's many sides. Um, but at least the two were presented with, and and unifying them into one antagonist. You as a group are using women as a weapon of war, and it doesn't matter that you're fighting each other. You're fighting each other with us. And and that is not acceptable to me anymore. And and so maybe it's possible that one of the things she does is commit suicide in some way, um, or 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 something like that as a final statement. It, it, you know, we we've talked a lot in this episode about how terrible what these soldiers have done to these women is, and that remains very true. I watched an interview with a gentleman who was playing the uh, the government commander, and he talked about how what, what informed his character was the way in which trauma has caused these soldiers to be what they are in no small part. We know a lot about the horrifying use of child soldiers in these wars. We know about the terrible violence that they've been forced to do to their own families, to each other, in order to stay in the unit and, you know, not get killed themselves. And so these these boys, and oftentimes these soldiers are teenage boys, uh, come from incredible trauma themselves and become uh, 
trauma-causing to other people as a response. This play, the text of this play does not do a ton of work on that particular side of the story, partially because it's it's so laser-focused on the experience of these women in the Congo, which is to its credit rather than to its detriment. Um, but I really like that actor bringing in that aspect, too, that it's not just one particular piece of trauma. It is a cycle of violence, which is perpetuated partially as a result of this war. Yeah. I, I did want to bring up kind of at the end, allow us allow us to to focus on on Christian and Mama Nadi for a little bit at the end here. Um, and and the through line of that throughout the play because it, it, it fluctuates all over the place. Um, I think they both hurt each other a decent amount throughout this play. And yet they keep ending up coming back to each other. There's a couple different beats um, where each of them kind of betrays the other a little bit. Um, one one that pops to mind for me is Mama Nadi ends up making Christian drink uh, whiskey in, in a pretty high-stakes situation where Commander Osambenga is commanding him to drink pretty much. But uh, she she tells him, you need to drink right now and you need to drink a lot and you need to drink until he tells you not to. Which um, is important so, because Christian is does not drink. He's on the wagon. He yeah. is sober after having, I assume, been an alcoholic for a long time and so adamantly does not drink. In fact, he says, I don't drink enough times before that scene that I was starting to go, okay. (laughs) But do you? (laughs) How many times are we going to say this? (laughs) I get it, dude. (laughs) You don't drink. And then it became such an important factor in that scene that I was like, okay, I get you. you." We had to really get that clear so that Mm the scene had some meaning. Yeah, so that's of course one of the moments that Mamanati betrays Christian. And then what happens is that from that moment on, Christian becomes a drunk, uh, right. just sort of hanging around the bar for the rest of the play. And in doing that, he has several moments where he's quite mean to Mamanati, where she, I think she is hurt by his drunkenness. Yeah. That he is not mm-hmm. who he used to be, which is this uh, sort of witty poetry quoting salesman who is always flirting with her and wanting a Fanta instead right. of a beer. And mm-hmm. he becomes different than that. He becomes sort of unhinged in the way that he talks and mean to her. And and so that he his behavior changes their relationship some as well. Mm-hmm. Throughout the play as well, he's foreshadowing some of things. He is oftentimes in almost a kidding way, but you wonder if it's kind of serious, suggesting that they run away together and form a uh, form a business together and, you know, have a life outside of here. Oh, and I think he's very serious. I think he's absolutely serious. I think within the context of the scenes, it seems like he's bringing it up as kind of part of their ribbing each other, and uh, this is what they do. Um, but I think he, he is absolutely this very serious of the two of them. And... But eventually, kind of uh, where where his his uh, drunkenness and her continued uh, uh, pushing against that uh, meets, he leaves, uh, and he's he's not in the region for mm, two or three scenes at the uh, at towards the end of the play, a, a chunk of the play, he is gone. Um, but he returns at the end of the play. Um, and uh, asks for a Fanta again. And uh, one of the nicknames they have for him is the professor because he keeps spouting these lines of poetry throughout the play. And um, and this is the scene where a lot of this, uh, the, a, a lot more of kind of the backstory of Mama Nadi comes out because as he returns, he offers, uh, <laughs> for what he says is the last time, but it happens like three times in that scene, uh, again to to leave and to try to start something away from here. Well, and he he makes clear that he's sort of tired of this. You know, he's finally he's finally at the end of the at the end of the scene before the last scene of the play, he's finally escaped it to some degree, right? He leaves and says I'm not coming back. And he does that because he pushes back a little bit on Mama Nadi forcing Sophie to uh, sexually gratify a soldier. 
um, that she has offended. And he says, you know, you shouldn't do that. And Mama Nutty takes it as sort of being judgmental. And she responds with this sort of tirade about how, you know, all of you men are so judgmental about what I do here and think that I mistreat or abuse these women when, you know, you're the one buying their services. I'm just the one feeding them every day. And she has this whole sort of rant about it that ends with them parting ways and Christian saying, I'm not coming back. And so he does escape that trajectory. And we know because of what happens in the last scene that he escapes it back into sobriety. But then he returns and... If he's not serious about running away with her, and if he's not serious about how he feels about her, I don't know why he comes back. Right. Yeah. No, I think I think he absolutely. I I don't think the parameters of the play seem to suggest that he's not serious about his his feelings. For right. Her. And so he comes back and gets back into this orbit, which he finally managed to break out of and says, look, I'm tired of this. I'm not doing Mm. this anymore. I don't want to be the salesman driving through all these dangerous roads to bring you crap. I want to just have a home (laughs) and a life, somebody that I'm familiar with, a bed that I know. So, you know, here I am. This is my final offer. Run away with me or I'm I'm done. I'm gone. Mm -hmm. And what happens? Well, it is in that scene that uh, eventually he, he, you know, says he'll leave, stops at the door, says it one more time, starts to leave, and Mama Nadi stops him and says, wait, um, and and is vulnerable. We, this is the scene where we discover uh, that she as well describes herself as ruined in this Which, scene. Which, like we've said, has so much back implication on the way that she's behaved throughout the play, the distance that she keeps people at, the way that she's cared, especially for Sophie, uh, her particular attitudes about the way that men are and, and treat people. Um, you, you sort of, that all that comes into focus. And when you're reading the play, you have the benefit of being able to go back and reread it. When you're seeing the right, play, I imagine right. you sort of go, I wish I could see the play again. <laughs> I yeah. understand. Oh. Right. <laughs> yep. And and it and it ends quite tenderly at the end. They they're dancing, and as I mentioned before, um, <laughs> Sophie and Josephine are kind of peeking in from the other room. The parrot gets the last line of the play, which is kind we, of we haven't funny. even talked about the parrot. <laughs> uh, uh, don't parrot. worry about it. There's yep. a parrot. <laughs> it, it's not really that big of a deal. It sort of feels like an unfired gun to me a little yeah, bit. Yeah. Like <laughs> you have a parrot that can clearly speak, but it doesn't super play into what ends up going on. Uh, right, so, right. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about the parrot ultimately, but the, well, the parrot least, gets the last line. <laughs> yeah, the parrot gets the last line. There's a pet involved in this relative family, so there you go. There you go. That's, <laughs> that's interesting. That's, that's interesting. That's part of it. So, yep, yep. so, I mean, how does the play actually end, Jackson? So Mama Nani doesn't say, I'm running away with you. All she does is agree to dance with Christian, which is something that he's been asking for the whole play alongside of the idea of running away with her. She does reveal to him that basically, you know, we couldn't have a child together you know, depending on, this is a little gruesome, but depending on how ruined she is, there's some possibility that she couldn't be intimate physically. So, you know, she reveals some of that, but then is ultimately willing to dance with him. And what does that mean? How, what is the, what is the end of the play? I think the end of this play involves so many questions as it serves no plot point ending. I think what we are left with is a feeling which in the midst of all this, we just come from a horrifying scene before this uh, where terrible things happen. But in the midst of this, the retinal image we get at the end is this moment where, and I'm going to say it again, this, this relative family has created itself in this terribleness. Right. And, and notably, there is a man involved in the family. One potential ending of this play really could have been just the total rejection of all the men of the play saying, you know, look at all this violence all of you do, which would not be an unjustified ending for the play that is written. 
Even Christian does violence on what occurs, but Lynn Nottage has written the, uh, Christian as sort of a different kind of man in some ways, potentially as a way to say, you know, th- there is a there is a choice being made by these men. Uh, well, some of them are to be sexually violent, to be monsters in some way, um, and, and some of them to be like Christian. It just depends. But but I do think that it is a poignant thought that she does include a man in the final family image. Certainly, uh, yeah, and and the final critique of men in the play comes from Christian. Um, he after uh, after she after Mamanati has said that uh, she that I'm ruined, I'm ruined. He he says um, I'm I, I, I may be an idiot for saying so, but I think we and I speak as a man can do better. Um, and, and I don't know what these men did to you, but I'm sorry for it. And, and that is the, uh, again, he joins in the voice at the end of the play, uh, critiquing the action of these men as well. Yeah. The only indication that Lynn Nottage gives us of what Mama Nadi and Christian are going to decide to do next is a stage direction, which indicates that as they're dancing, there's like a sense of possibility or something right. like that, which is, of course, intentionally very vague. Right. <laughs> All is not lost, kind of. <laughs> yeah, so it's, I mean, who knows what happens? Maybe they do. I, I don't know that Mamanati runs away, but Christian does offer to stay and run the bar with her. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, his, his, in, his inclination is not just that we should run away together, but also that we should just at least be together. In fact, the final scene, I think the refrain that he uses is, why not us? Why yeah. not us, huh? Why not us? Why can't we just run this bar together, be this sort of matriarch and patriarch of this little bar in the <laughs> middle of the Congo? Um, right. And that sort of – that might be the end question of the of the of that relationship. Why not? Why not right. us? Amidst all of this, why not have something that makes us happy? Well, I'm afraid that is all the time we have for this, our first episode of season two. Um, whew. What a what a wild conversation! What, yeah, oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> what a <laughs> it's a little bit of a dark play to start season two with. I promise yep. that this is not an indication that we're going to be doing dark, <laughs> terrible plays all the time. Right, uh, but we we will continue to do important plays though, and and this play is a very important play. So I'm I'm glad we we stuck with the theme of uh, Lynn Nottage for the first uh, episodes of our season. If there are more, uh, if you want to continue this conversation with us, if there are more themes that you picked up on or more facets of this play and these characters that you'd like to discuss with us we'd love to continue the conversation with you we are on facebook instagram and twitter at no script podcast is the handle there and our uh, gmail is no script podcast at gmail.com we would love to keep uh, talking about plays with you and and include the greater community at large in this because the more perspectives we have on these plays, the better we we all understand these plays. So thank you to everyone who is engaging there, and we look forward to continuing to talk to you. Absolutely. If you liked this episode, if you've liked the episodes of our season one, the best thing that you can do for us is share this. Tell other people about it. Either click share on your preferred social media platform or actually just go out and tell your friends, your family about it. If you like scripts, that's why you're listening, I would guess. And that means that you probably know people who like scripts. So please get them connected to the No Script community as we continue to look at these great treasures of dramatic literature. We want as many people in the conversation as possible. You can find our podcast on Google Play, on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, and Podbean, where the podcast is hosted. Of course, the easiest way to find it is by clicking the link that we put up every Monday on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, which contains a link to the Podbean uh, host site for this episode. We are also on Patreon. If you yeah. would like to support what we are doing, we would love you to do that. Yeah, uh, thanks. Pro- yeah, thank you if you want to do that. Uh, look, producing this podcast is not free. It's not free to us to do. Uh, We do it because we love the conversations. We think it's important. We think dramatic literature is important. And so we continue to do it. But we would love some support from the community at large. So we are on Patreon. There's a couple different tiered levels of rewards and ways that you can give uh, monthly through Patreon. If you have that income, if you have that inclination, we really would appreciate that help. Yes, indeed. We have a couple of great tiers over there. As he said, we're looking to uh, kind of add a couple more throughout this year. So it's a great place to be if you want to continue to be a kind of supporter of the show and, and be involved with the show at all. Um, But yeah, until uh, next week when we're coming at you with another play. Uh, 
I'm Jackson Nikolai. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for listening. Yeah, we'll yeah. see you next week. Season two, baby. Yeah, yeah. Bye.